I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, October 23rd, 2018. Coming up, we'll hear from journalist Jason Plouts about the social, psychological, and human health impacts of living near oil and gas operations in the Front Range, especially in the wake of the Windsor gas explosion last December at an oil well site. Jason co-wrote an article that was just published in High Country News. And a rather optimistic vision of the future of the planet and human well-being. Matthew Burgess, an assistant professor at CU Boulder in environmental studies, will discuss a recently published paper that he co-authored on the subject. We will skip the science headlines today so that we can dive right into our two feature interviews. Thanks for listening to KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. By now, you've probably received your ballot for the upcoming elections, and you're at least somewhat familiar with Proposition 112. It would require oil and gas wells to be at least 2,500 feet from homes, schools, parks, and other buildings to protect residents and others from harmful effects of drilling. It's a hot-button issue along the Front Range, with Weld County being center stage for the latest oil and gas boom. Nearly half of Colorado's 55,000 active wells are located there. Our guest today is Denver-based journalist Jason Plouts. He's been covering the science, the politics, economics, and social and medical impacts of oil and gas development. Jason and his colleague, Dan Glick, wrote a feature article that was just published in High Country News. It starts with a look back at the horrific gas explosion last December at a well site in Windsor, which injured one oil and gas worker. The article shows how this kind of explosion could actually still happen in so many other places, and how other activities like pipeline leaks, flaring, ongoing emissions of volatile organic compounds and other chemicals pose health risks to residents. Jason, welcome to How on Earth. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start by just zooming us into what, what actually happened last December and, and where what's the state of that now? Sure. Well, uh, as you said, there was a, an explosion at a uh, oil drilling site uh, in Windsor, Colorado. Uh, only one worker was injured, and, and that was very lucky. According to the people we talked to, uh, the former fire chief who was uh, on scene that night, he said it was a dice roll. Uh, things could have been so much worse. Because uh, there were so many more workers or simply the proximity to all these homes? Um, uh, in part, the proximity to homes, although there weren't uh, a number of homes directly in the blast radius, it was really the response. There's so much equipment. There's so much pressure built up. There's so much, um, you know, just gas and flammable material on site uh, that if the fire had gotten a little bit more out of control, if it had leaped in one direction rather than another, uh, you know, this could have been a lot worse for uh, the workers, the responders, uh, and everybody involved. Yeah, and... Take us to, so the one who was injured was actually an oil and gas worker, Mm -hmm. someone you have really prominently featured in your story, which is a very moving beginning of like what it was actually like (laughs) and for the cops, who was dispatching and just blow by blow account. But this particular resident tells a really um, kind of tragic and human story. Uh, yeah, well, there, there was the worker who was injured, but um, you know what, what really struck us in having these conversations was talking to the neighbors who live around the site. Uh, you know, as I said, there weren't uh, there weren't homes directly in the in the blast radius, so to speak. Uh, firefighters weren't immediately concerned about any homes in the area, uh, but that's not to say nobody was affected. Uh, we talked to people a, a mile, even more than a mile away, who felt the blast, who heard the blast. 
you know, this happened in the evening around uh, 8, 8.30. Uh, people had just put their kids to bed. People mm -hmm. were just relaxing on their couch. It was just before Christmas. People were putting up Christmas decorations. And all of a sudden, you hear this explosion ripping through the night uh, and subsequent explosions as, as tiny pockets of pressure, uh, you know, that have built up, uh, heated up and, and started popping. Um, and what really uh, was striking was uh, there's equipment right behind people's homes. There's a, a woman we interviewed, Carly Robinson. Mm. Um, <clears throat> she is within a mile to, of the blast. She heard it. She could see it as soon as she stepped out. Uh, and all of a sudden she says, you know, I, I've got one of these right behind my fence. And, you know, Dan and I were at her home. It is literally behind her fence. You go to her wow. backyard, there's a fence, there's another fence. And then there's this this huge, you know, and uh, is that because the housing development came after the legacy well? I know right. there are all these things between the housing development, <laughs> which comes first, and thus what can the setback be? Uh, that That's right. You know, these are supposed to be, uh, it, it depends on what town you live in. Uh, I, I don't have the numbers right in front of me. Um, uh, but yeah, they're supposed to be X hundred feet away, depending on what town you live in. But of course, there are all sorts of ways around it. If the well exists and the developer buys the land and builds the house, uh, you can sort of get around that. Uh, there, are, there are all sorts of things. And, and also there's abandoned wells behind people's homes. There's pipelines that run through people's backyards or their driveways or in front of their house. Mm -hmm. um, and this is all equipment that, you know, for the most part, it, it's idle you wouldn't think about it. You know, sometimes when it's active, it's noisy, it's going all night, and then it's constantly on your mind. But uh, I think uh, what struck us was talking to folks in Windsor after this explosion, it, it really became front of mind. Uh, you know, it's Carly Robinson, this woman I mentioned, she told us, I feel like I'm playing Russian roulette with my family. She doesn't wow. know what's going to happen with this equipment in her backyard. What if something goes wrong and that blows up? So I'm curious, in, not to spend too much time on Windsor, but I'm very curious to know from your research, I mean, sort of what went wrong then and what, if anything, has changed since then and now to make residents feel more or less safe, but to see what, what actually has been done. Sure. Well, uh, best we can tell what happened that night. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, in these sorts of events, it's so complex. And really, there's, uh, you know, as a number of experts told us, there's probably one person who knows what happened and uh, even that person may not remember and, and that's that one worker who was there um, uh, you know who was sent to the hospital with third degree burns uh, uh, what we think happened was there was a, a generator and a heater uh, that were placed closer to other equipment than is required as recommended under uh, safety rules um, Best we can tell that that generator had been on the fritz for a while. It had been shutting off sort of at random. Uh, it was powering the shack that uh, this worker was working in. Uh, we think that generator went off. Uh, he went out. The lights went off in his trailer, so he went out and said, i got to restart this generator. There had been a gas leak somewhere on site. Uh, there was a, a reservoir a monitoring station uh, here in Boulder that had mm. picked up an, an enormous release of gas. Uh, that has been backtracked to the area. We don't know. Uh, it's only one data point. We don't know if it came from that site. Uh, but, you know, the best guess is that it did. So there was a gas leak when uh, this worker went to restart that generator. Um, something caused a spark, lit that, uh, lit that pool of gas up. Um, but again, this just shows you on a site that's that complex, it, it's something that simple, just a, a generator that wasn't working for a few days. 
you know, that could have caused this this whole incident. And um, that's the just one example of an acute problem, where exactly. the more chronic ones are, as I alluded to before, sort of the flaring and the volatile organic compounds, the benzene and others that are coming out all the time to say nothing of the particulate matter from the trucks and things. Exactly right. I mean, the, you know, these sites, when, when they're running, they're, they're putting off emissions. And, uh, you know, there have been uh, some studies, especially uh, here on the Front Range, there's been uh, some great study. But, you know, you look around the country and there have been sort of individual studies that, that link uh, proximity to uh, oil and gas sites. Uh, increased cancer risk, adverse birth outcomes, uh, all sorts of environmental problems. I mentioned the the monitoring station here in Boulder. Um, uh, you know, this station is monitoring for uh, volatile organic compounds. That's things like benzene, uh, toluene, you know, really nasty substances that are associated with oil and gas drilling. And um, this benzene, basically, every time you go fill your car with gas. It, it, right. So it's one thing to have sort of short-term acute exposure. Right. You know, a lot of the studies look at what it, the longer-term ex- exposure and does distance matter? Of course, it does. <laughs> it, it, right. <laughs> it, exactly. And and you know we're building up a body of science that's showing you know what does uh, short-term, long-term exposure to these sites mean? Um, you know, I, I think you know given that this this fracking boom is still relatively young. Uh, you know, uh, given the, the length the length of time that science takes, I think we're building up more and more studies uh, that show what these effects could be. So I remember last year I wrote about and we had on the show Lisa McKenzie, Dr. Lisa McKenzie from the uh, Colorado School of Public Health, and she had come out with a cancer-focused study mm-hmm. that was quite different from the state health department's study that showed much less of a risk. And a lot of people have questioned if it's just too close to the oil and gas industry or what's your sense of actually the state of the science and is there still this big discrepancy? I know cancer is not the only indicator we're looking at. but Right. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think, as I said, we're still sort of in the early stages. You know, um, as you said, uh, some of the state uh, studies will show a a much lower impact. Uh, And right, there is concern about, you know, how close is that to the industry? How close is that to the industry line? How much of that is uh, not wanting to create a data set that's, um, uh, you know, that's going to cause problems for the industry? Um, but part of it is also, uh, you know, uh, the state, the government doesn't want to get out over their skis. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we're still looking at sort of uh, relatively small uh, sample sizes, and and you know, you don't know. That's that's just the nature of science. Is is you can't say well. Uh, you know, proximity to the well caused X. You can say, well, proximity to the well is associated with a higher risk of, you know, cancer or adverse birth outcomes. But, um, y- you know, we don't know. And and some people haven't been living next to these sites for all that long. You know, you know, people really want to see long-term studies that go out over years and decades to see, okay, what are the long-term health effects the longer you live next to these sites? Mm-hmm. Well, we just don't have that data yet. Mm-hmm. So what's your sense almost a year after the Windsor explosion, are residents any more or less safe, susceptible to that kind of explosion? And for that matter, year before was the Firestone. Right. right? Um, yeah, there, there was Firestone, there was Mead. Um, uh, you know, I, I think uh, one thing that, that we learned, um, you know, you look at what, what is the state doing? What is the state investigating? What is the state looking for? And, uh, you know, one thing they said was, well, now we know, uh, you know, this, the, equipment, uh, you know, the placement of the generators, uh, they were, 
at the time of this explosion, the site was doing activity called uh, hot work. They were doing flowback operations, which is a particularly dangerous uh, part of the fracking operation. Um, and they say, well, now we know what to look for. Um, it, does that mean that residents are safer? You know, it's it's hard to say, um, mm-hmm. you know, because as I said, these sites are so complex. They're, they're out there. They're so close to people's homes, uh, homes and neighborhoods, et cetera. Um, and tiny little things can go wrong and cause big problems. Right. And there's not a heck of a lot of regular monitoring. No, we'll that's... get into that another yeah. time. But so just one more question. What sort of a takeaway you have for listeners? We've got elections coming up and a couple ballot measures related to this. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Prop 112, the, uh, the setback initiative. Um, you know, I, I think that this uh, the safety concerns need to be part of the discussion. And the science needs to be part of the discussion. Uh, you know, I wouldn't advocate one way or the other, but uh, you know, I think learning as much as you can about um, uh, you know balancing the economic impact. Uh, certainly, the state has seen a, a huge economic impact from oil and gas drilling. Um, I think it's also important to look at the safety, the social, and the health impacts as well. Thank you so much, Jason Plouts, for coming on the show. Thank you. That was Jason Plouts. He's an independent journalist based in Denver. He and his colleague Dan Glick wrote an in-depth feature article that was just published in High Country News. In fact, we'll link to that article and some previous related articles on our website, howonearthradio.org, later today. Thanks for listening to How on Earth on KGNU. That's in Denver, Boulder, Fort Collins, and Nederland. I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. Our next guest, Matthew Burgess, has been immersed in thinking about and studying how we humans and the planet we inhabit can both remain intact and, in fact, can both thrive well into the future. Hmm. You may ask, what planet is he living on? Well, actually, he is a serious environmental scientist at CU Boulder, He's an assistant professor in environmental studies who also holds an appointment in economics. And he works in the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences, or CERES. It's a collaboration between NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and the University of Colorado. Dr. Burgess and two dozen colleagues around the country authored a paper that was recently published in a peer-reviewed journal. The title of the paper is aptly named an attainable global vision for conservation and human well-being. In their study, the researchers applied models to show that we, the world, can meet demands of increased populations and economic growth 
buyer in 2050 while simultaneously achieving bold and effective conservation and climate goals set forth by the United Nations. That covers a lot, so maybe we should just jump right in. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So what on earth, if I may use the expression, do you mean when you and your colleagues say conservation and human health can thrive in the future. That's a rosy outlook. Could you break that down for us? Yeah, sure. So we were we wanted to look at the achievability of several major sustainability targets, but importantly, we wanted to see if they were achievable without requiring a major technological breakthrough or some kind of major change in our demand. So things like, you know, we didn't want to assume that everybody would become vegetarian, for instance. Um, and our question was, across multiple sectors, could such a vision be achieved by doing things like um, moving where, where crops are produced to more productive uh, farmlands, rebuilding fisheries, um, shifting the energy system quite significantly towards um, non-fossil fuel sources? Um, and the answer that, that we got is that you actually can achieve uh, these, these targets with these kinds of changes. And they are pretty big changes, but they're also uh, exclusive of technological changes and behavior changes. And so the, any of those changes that we could make would make the, our, our vision you know, even more optimistic Better. than, it, than, it, than right. it would need to be. Yeah, and I guess many might argue, well, we should really look at population growth and should really look at, I don't not just existing technologies, but not assume the same sort of trajectory of economic growth or economic demands. And yet it's all the more powerful in a way that you're saying, no, that we're not prescriptive here. We're just looking at models. We're looking at projections based on sort of current trajectories right. of population and economic growth. So, yeah, I'm... I'm curious, break it down, like how you came to looking at the different sectors. Sounds like it's basically fisheries and ag, energy, energy fossil fuel and renewables. But. Aquaculture. So the, the idea was, let's take projections, published projections from the United Nations for how many people they're going to be, um, for how big the economy is going to be actually from the, the, the EIA. The, and, that, and that's just to make the... Flesh that out. This is the Department of Energy... The U.S. Energy Information Administration. So there are several groups that project uh, the size of the economy. We wanted to project how the economy changes and how energy demand changes with it. And so in order to be consistent, we wanted to use the same uh, source for, 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 those, for those projections. Um, and, then, and then we used historical patterns to project, you know, as people get richer, they, uh, as, as more people, as people, as the population grows, you get more food demand, but as people get richer, you get more food demand. And that mm -hmm. turns out to be the bigger contributor to what, to increasing food demand is people eat more as they get rich. They I'm just thinking all the demand for soy from Brazil to feed uh, the pigs for pork, which is mushrooming in consumption well, exactly, in China, right? That's exactly what, yeah. what drives it largely is it's, it's people who are eating more um, calorically inefficient foods and, and more food uh, uh, total. And uh, and so, and so our model asked, okay, look, let's take these projections of what we're going to demand in terms of energy and food as given, um, and 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 the number of people, and let's just and let's see if we can make that fit on on the planet with with technologies that already exist. 
across multiple sectors. Um, and, and, and a key point in terms of how our vision ends up being optimistic is that it's, it's these multiple sectors working together to make it so. And that was, that was a big uh, take-home point from the new IPCC report is that if this we're going to get... This is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that just last week or two weeks correct. ago came out with a new assessment. Yeah. So if we're going to get to the 1.5 degree warming target... Break it, that down. So for listeners, a 1.5 degrees Celsius increase in CO2 emissions from in pre-industrial... Globally. Oh, globally, from yeah, pre-industrial in, levels. In temperature, right? yeah. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that is the... That that is the 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 threshold one one point five degrees Celsius additional warming, that or sorry total warming from pre-industrial levels that a lot of people think is 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 the red line for a lot of the the really bad um, impacts of the climate change. The tipping point. The tipping point. Right. Uh, and 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 so, so what 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 we find is that you can get to we we use one point six degrees in our in our paper. Um, but it really has to be these multiple multiple sec, multiple sectors working together rather than you know just coming from agriculture or just coming from energy for instance so uh, you don't that's a political will statement there of everybody working together um, I know you probably don't go into the politics of it but so what are the different sectors again um, so so energy agriculture uh, water and irrigation uh, fisheries uh, and, uh, and aquaculture. So, uh, what, uh, of those sectors did you focus on? So I focus on fisheries, uh, primarily. And, uh, and, and so for, for fisheries, the, the, we, we looked at a business as usual scenario, which, which forecasts how fishing pressures is going to, is going to change, um, based on historical fishing pressure and based on, uh, the, the size of the population, um, and the economy, and and in businesses usually find that that eighty four percent of the the fisheries will be experiencing overfishing, which means that the the amount of fishing mortality that we're we're putting on on the fish is is too high. Um, but we also found that in sustainability, we can rebuild all of those all of those fisheries. Um, to, and and what's interesting about fisheries is that. The, that might be the quintessential example of where the economy and the environment are, are aligned. Because hmm. if, we, if we stop overfishing, we actually catch more fish eventually. <laughs> uh, this is part you, of like the tragedy of the right. commons. It's exactly, right? that's, it exa- that's exactly what, 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 what causes overfishing. Um, so the, the, we, we fish less in the sustainability scenario than we do now, but we, in terms of number, how many boats are in the water, but we actually catch more fish. Uh, and so, and so that's good for, for the environment and that's good for, for food security because we're, you know, a lot, a lot of the places in the world, uh, that are, that are experiencing rapid population and, and income growth are places that eat more fish than we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know, again, this is not prescriptive, but mm-hmm. would you suggest things like more marine protected areas or more cap and trade systems for cod and halibut or for particular kinds of fishery industries? So Fisheries are, I mean, probably like any uh, sector, or don't really. There's no one size fits all approach. Uh, there's a there's a environmental scientist named John Foley who has a, a expression that uh, we should use silver buckshot rather than silver bullets. <laughs> <laughs> Scatter shot. Uh, you know. Yes. So so there 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 are some places where marine protected areas have have have, have helped. Uh, there are some places 
you know, like in the U.S., where the uh, tradable quotas or basically cap and trade for for fish have, have helped a lot. Um, there are other places where they have these uh, kind of spatial community property rights called turfs um, that that seem to work really well. Um, so I don't think I don't think that the answer is necessarily to to say you know everybody should have cat shares or everybody should have mm-hmm. MPAs. I think it's sort of a different things work well in different places. Yeah, and I want to drill down into energy and ag sectors. We don't quite have time mm-hmm. for all that. We could pick, have pick you on one. again. <laughs> well, actually, since we have a, a minute yet left, I do want to ask, so a lot of people have put forth this message. We've got the technology. We need some changes in land practices. Some growers are doing it more than others, yada, yada, yada. If we only had the political will, I mean, the inconvenient truth in 2004, whenever that came out, that was a main message. Here we are in a hyper-polarized, hyper-partisan world where no one even wants to talk about talking across the divide. And this is only the U.S., but granted, we play a big role in the world. Do you, um, I mean, are you optimistic about that? Because we don't want to be too Pollyannish either. Sure. I mean, it's certainly a huge challenge. Personally, I think that the environment is much more polarized than it should be. And in fact, it's made out to be more polarized than it is. So there have been studies that find that majorities of Republicans and as well as Democrats believe in person-made climate change and and that something should should be done about it. And there are also some... I think I think if we had a society wide, you know, war on climate change kind of, you know, <laughs> there's lots of research that suggests that uh, people break down polarization by working together on some shared project. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are a lot of um, there are a lot of there are a lot of people who can win on all sides of the aisle um, from 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 action on these goals. So there's, for instance, there's there's booming um, renewable energy sectors in Texas and Arizona. Um, which are which are both are both red states, um, and and I, I think that there is a lot that business leaders have to to contribute to to solving the the, the climate problem. In fact, um, my brother, who's a, a business leader, and I co-authored a uh, uh, an op-ed in our our policy center's uh, blog saying that Elon Musk should win the Nobel Peace Prize for his contributions <laughs> to, to renewable energy technology. Well, he might have more free time now that he's not chairman for a while. Yeah, <laughs> that's not <laughs> right. <laughs> now that the SEC has given him the boot. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. We'd love to pursue this more in the future. Thank you. Thank Matt you very Burgess. much for having me. That was Matthew Burgess, an assistant professor in environmental studies who also holds an appointment in economics. And he works at the Cooperative Institute for Research Environmental Studies, or CERES. The paper he co-authored was recently published in the journal Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment. We'll link to the paper on our website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was also produced by me, Susan Moran, and engineered by my co-host, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Marion Meadows. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show... I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. 